And now, coming to you live in the year of our podcast, 2014, from high atop the Coot Street Motel 6, it's the hard-talking, long-diverting, very rambling Coot Street Podcast! Hey, there we are, and we, which, which is a, which is a very enthusiastic and energetic way of starting the new year, and an equally energetic and enthusiastic way of letting our listeners know that we don't have a new opening yet. We don't have a new opening yet. We, uh, in, in fact, that was actually all of the energy we have for the entire podcast, right? Pretty much it. I think we can quit now. <laughs> I mean, as we slowly sort of drift towards our fourth anniversary and our two hundredth episode in london which we're going to call our 200th extravaganza episode and then do nothing special for possibly record and then lose um i think we should sit in the hotel lobby in london and record a podcast and simply announce as we see famous people walking by not try to talk to them but just say look there look that's 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 ian mcdonald over there and everyone will go (laughs) oh we could you know we could do we could synchronize it to a powerpoint presentation gary don't even talk to me about that. I've been interviewing faculty candidates. This is an aside. I want to see if this is something that comes up in your day job. And it's not necessarily related to science fiction and fantasy, but it's really a little bit to the idea of science. I've been interviewing candidates for faculty positions in criminal justice. And I've done this in other faculty positions. There's a field called organizational leadership. And they all do presentations that are based on something that they call evidence-based research, evidence-based criminology, evidence-based organizational theory. Yeah. And and I finally blew up at one of them and I said, if you were a biologist or a physicist or a chemist, you wouldn't preface anything with evidence-based because that's what the word science means, isn't it? <laughs> if you have, what have these people been doing all these years if they haven't been basing their conclusions on evidence? <laughs> Oh, 170 hours of podcast, Gary. That's what I've been doing. <laughs> hey, hey, with 170 hours, we're allowed to blather on semi-irrelevant topics. And I just, but okay, we'll, we'll relate it. We'll relate it to our topic. What I want to see now is more evidence-based science fiction. That's hard SF, isn't it? Ha ha! Ha Yes, it is. You realize, Gary, it's been two months since we recorded a new episode of the podcast. Not two months since we broadcast, but two months. It has been. We we last chatted back in at the end of November of two uh, of two thousand and thirteen, and here we are at the end of January of two thousand and fourteen. So let me ask you, what have you been up to since last we podcast? I've had an enjoyable holiday and a miserable, terrible, apocalyptic winter here in Chicago. Not just in Chicago, but all of North America. I know you've been having broiling. Yeah, we always do. We have our, our our weather for the last month is weather designed by Roland Emmerich. It's, <laughs> it's, it's catastrophic. It's it's going it's below zero outside now, which is something like eighteen below in in, in your sure, calculations. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's there was a period where the temperature stayed for almost forty hours below zero. Uh, and when it when it warms up, it snows. Then the snow goes away and it freezes. And this is not the kind of winter that we've seen in Chicago for at least 10 years. And I've been here, well, for many more years than that. Yeah. So basically, you need a mammoth to get around. Mm-hmm. Essentially, this is this is a kind of new Ice Age thing. Although I understand that it actually is the result of global, global warming creating a heat patch in the South Pacific, which is shifting the Gulf Stream, not the, the, uh, the this, whatever it is. Um, the, um, That's assuming that climate change is real. Hi to all you climate change doubters out there right now. Yeah, well, that's the other thing I've been teaching a course. I'm teaching a course on sustainability in fiction right now, and we could talk about that. And uh, is that using like acid-proof paper in your on, in your books or what? Oh yeah, exactly. Which is, uh, <laughs> okay, so you had a great holiday. I assume that you know you and Stacy had a nice sort of Christmassy thing, and Absolutely. you exchanged Some gifts and did all that. Spend time with the family. Yep. Uh, and I assume you did the same sort of thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, as you know, I've, I've continued to be struck down by some minor well, some medical issues. But yeah, the family and I went away and had a Christmas together down in the southwest of Western Australia, which was very pleasant. And then um, it was my 50th birthday a little while ago. 
So you know, I got myself a new, a new MacBook Air for for Christmas or for my birthday, I mean. And I read a very small amount of science fiction, and assembled the Locust recommended reading short fiction list. Um, skived out of doing my recommended reading essay. Mm. Uh, I, I pretty much assembled my best of the year, which I've just got to do one or two little things on, and it's done. And have made significant steps on my next book, Reach for Infinity which I have to also deliver quite soon. So busy, busy, busy time, which well, of course is one of the reasons why we didn't podcast. It is. I mean, it's, 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 it's a bit, it's, it's odd because of the Christmas season, uh, holiday season, I should say, New Year's season, ought to result in more free time, but it somehow doesn't. No. At um, all. It, well, I think, well, you and I are both engaged with the preparation of the Locust Recommended Reading List and accompanying issues and i have mm-hmm. a year in review and the, uh, you recommended reading and they tend to be aimed at a february publication which means a january assembly and that's why mm. december january is so insane and will continue to be forever until such time as we're uh, doing those things as long as you're doing things on monthly deadlines but you <laughs> mentioned reach for infinity anthology and i was I'm aware of, of that's being assembled because our mutual friend Ellen Clay just was here when you accepted she was. her story for it. She was. Which means that uh, and, and it's it's a very heartbreaking story without spoiling anything. And I've not read the other stories in the anthology. But the segue here, the very clever segue into something that some listener might remotely be interested in hearing about, is that that's one of the books I'm looking forward to in 2014. Oh, awesome. I hope you're not disappointed. I'm not disappointed with it so far. That's not <laughs> <story>. <laughs> no, there's, there's some good stories in there. It's got a good ba- a good group of people have um, got stories in. I have to admit, sort of, don't tell anybody else because otherwise I'll get in trouble. But I have given one writer a ridiculously late extension deadline thing to, just to try and squeeze their story in. But everything else is mm-hmm. being assembled because it's got to go in. I, it was originally due in on the 31st of this month, the same day the best of the year is due. But it's going to go mm. in on the 14th of February. And so I've extended this. Basically, this author will get their story to me. I'll read it and accept it or not, pr- uh, edit it on the spot, put it into the manuscript and submit the manuscript. And then I can move on to the book that's due in March. What book is due in March? Fearsome Magics, the follow-up to Fearsome Journeys. Right. And that that's going to make it out in 2014? Yes, it will, yes. Okay, excellent. So two big anthologies this year. Yeah. And then I, I will, uh, of course, the other thing I had which came out during uh, our, our recess was the January issue of Subterranean Magazine, which I edited. Mm-hmm. Which went online 1st of January and had stories by Karen J. F- Joy Fowler and Ellen Clagis and Francis Harding and all kinds of interesting people. It was a classic issue. I've looked at it. I had not read all the stories in it. Yeah, uh, but it's amazing that things like that are available. Uh, yes, but welcome to the twenty. Welcome to the twenty-first century, Gary. So hey, yes. one other announcement. We have one other scoop before we get into our yes, forthcoming book. Since we'll be the first people to announce this on a podcast, because I only announced it today. The only thing, the only award that I administer, uh, hands-on more or less, is the Crawford Award from the International Association of the Fantastic and the Arts. And we just decided because you were one of the people on our group uh, yesterday that this year's winner is Sophia Samatar for A Stranger in a Laundry, which we've talked about before on the podcast. And we've talked to Sophia. And since Sophia is one of our guests, I think we should congratulate her. Congratulations, Sophia and Gary. What a spectacular piece of backfilling on your behalf. Wasn't that good? It was, I mean, particularly since, as I recall, on the podcast itself with Sophia, we accidentally led her to believe that she was going to win the Crawford Award for A Stranger in a Laundry. Hmm? I I, that was, that was, um, okay, so I was drinking that night, but it was, it was total confusion because I was thinking of the previous year's winner. I know. And in fact, uh, as you know, I don't even participate in the Crawford Award deliberations other than making them happen. Yeah. Um, we should also mention, um, the runner, the, the, the shortlist, which included a Yoon Ha Lee collection. Yes. Which is a, a really spectacular collection. Really brilliant collection. Yeah. Partly science fiction, partly fantasy. Um, and includes and one of the year's best novellas, Isult's Lexicon. Yes, okay. Uh, I've not. Uh, actually, I, I loaned my copy to one of the Crawford readers so that I will have to get it back. Yep. Um, 
Pauline Wecker's The Gollum and the Jenny, which was published as a mainstream book. Uh, but every once in a while, a mainstream writer seems to get everything right, and that was the general opinion yep. of most of the judges. And finally, a book by a fellow Australian of yours, N.A. Yes. Solway, yes. Rupetta, yeah. published, oddly enough, by Tartarus Press, which makes it, uh, like some small presses, almost invisible to most readers. I think, okay, I think that that book, Repetta, is almost invisible because it's published in an edition of 300 copies. But I mm -hmm. will give Tartarus this. They managed to make it and some of their other books simultaneously available as a very affordable ebook through Amazon. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for I think it's a $4.99 purchase or something, you can buy this very, very good book, strongly recommended by our, our friend Ellen Clages. Mm -hmm. Um... And I, I think at least it's good that it's available. So many of these limited edition books and small, small press books are only av available to the immediate group who happen to get a hold of them. So, Which is true. And I think one of the functions of, of some awards, of all awards, I think this is true of the, um, to some extent of the Tiptree Award, to some extent of the World Fantasy Award, and to some extent of the Crawford Award, is that you want to have people who will have access to or have had called to their attention books from small presses that might not be visible enough to make, for example, sure. a Hugo ballot. Yeah, absolutely true. I think that's absolutely true. So I think it's great. And I also hats off to Small Beer Press, who have spent many years publishing fine books, and who did publish mm -hmm. A Stranger in Elantria. And I mean, I, I think, if I recall, Sophia said she'd been working on this book for an extended period of time, you know, many years. Mm -hmm. So now we get to sit there and go, well, when's she going to give us the second one? Uh, she's well aware of that. Um, and, but she's also an academic. She's now teaching at, 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 at a, at a I've, 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 I've joked with her about this because it sounds to me like something out of a Kim Stanley Robinson future California novel. She's teaching at the University of California Channel Islands. Okay. Now, you would have thought the Channel Islands were somewhere off the coast of Britain, wouldn't you? <laughs> I tend to, no, yes. No, they're, they're, they're mudflats in the middle of the Los Angeles River or something. I don't know what they are, but uh, <laughs> it's just an odd name for a California campus. I can't picture Sophia in, in, in a tent, probably wearing khaki shorts <laughs> and swatting off mosquitoes as she attempts to sort of teach her class. I mean, I don't think it's going to be like that, is it? It probably, probably is, and in the distance you can see Disneyland. I Actually, don't know. I, I think if this is California. There probably aren't any islands. I just call it that anyway for the hell of it. I don't. I, we'll have to ask her. Maybe I'm Sophia, sure Sophia can tell us. Sophia can tell us because she's Maybe. the only person I know who is involved with the Channel Islands in California. It's, it's, but to get back to our topic, to get well, back to our topic. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to say, actually, we have a, we, not only do we have a topic, but we actually have a theme, Gary, I think. I haven't broached with, with this with you formally, but I think we have a 2014 podcasting theme. The whole, right. the whole year? Well, the first season, shall we say. Okay, the first season. And I think it is The Road to Luncon, or Luncon, or however you pronounce it. It is yeah. us getting ready to go to London, preparing mm -hmm. for our 200th podcast, talking about a bit more about British science fiction as we go. So the theme is sort of like winter is coming on a Game of Thrones. But it's going to be summer. But yeah, I know, but Game of Thrones has got to be winter, so I was just going to make a kind of... <laughs> this is, something is going to happen off in the distance in season seven. And actually, if you if you consider that, I only read, and this actually ties into what we're going to talk about in an odd ways. Well, I only read one novel during the entirety of our hiatus, if you can believe it. Uh, I mean, we were away for two months, and I read one book. Isn't that pretty rubbish? That's uh, I, I, in one way I'm envious because I read more than one. Uh, in another way, I'm envious because you probably read whatever book you wanted to. I did actually. What I did, Gary, is I got drunk and I bought an ebook. Is that the only way you buy ebooks? <laughs> no, but I mean, I've been. Are you familiar with the Folio Society? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the Folio Society, listeners, if you're not familiar with it, is a English publisher who produce high-end, pretty gifty editions of books. In fact, we were we, looking at the uh, Folio Society editions in the British Library. We were when we were in London. You're right. And I actually purchased a, one as a gift for a friend of mine just recently, mm -hmm. a copy of Alan Garner's The Owl Service. But when I was looking at that, I saw something else. Uh, they've put J.G. Ballard's The Drowned World into a Folio Society edition. Mm -hmm. 
And I've never read J.G. Ballard's The Drowned World, Gary. Really? Really. I've read, like, in fact, I will now fess up listeners. I've only ever read one J.G. Ballard book before this. And what was that? Vermilion Sands. Well, that's like 1962 or something. That was when Ballard was a puppy. I know. I it's, it's it's very odd because Ballard is one of the few writers I can think of that brought me along a curve mm-hmm. that no one else was doing at the time. Because I remember, I think they were Berkeley paperbacks of yep. his first. Now, well, not now, but before he died, had pretty much disowned The Wind from Nowhere. I loved The Wind from Nowhere. It was a big disaster movie of a novel. Yeah. And and then you got, um, oh, let me see the 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 the, the one about the. Uh, Desert, the or the burning planet, or something. So, so you had you had wind, you had drought, uh, the drowning world, um, and then and then it starts it starts getting really weird with the drowned world. Yeah. And then and then he starts moving you along into uh, the real new wave stuff, which is something we'll talk about before the year is over, because several people have said that this is now the 50th anniversary of Moorcock's assuming the editorship of New Worlds, which makes this. And one way of looking, sure, the 50th Absolutely. anniversary of the wave. Well, but when Ballard coming... started doing, okay. Well, I was just going to say when Ballard started doing that really weird stuff, and I distinctly remember the uh, first few stories I read by him at that point. Uh, I was thinking these these are not the disaster novels he was writing that I fell in love with, but these are even more interesting, and they're yeah. even weirder, and they are disaster stories. Yes, they are. So. What I did was I looked at this website that had a, a $70 copy of The Drowned World on it, and I went, I don't know if I've never I've never read that. And I'd had – it was late, Gary. It's late at night, and I'd had a glass or two of wine. I'm sorry on this podcast to talk about imbibing alcohol. Probably not appropriate, but still. And I thought, I shall download a sample of this book from Amazon. And I read a couple of chapters, and then I downloaded the rest of it, and I barreled through it very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And was completely entranced by the book and thought it was terrific, as you would expect. Yeah, and that has actually influenced my initial opening for books we're looking forward to in 2014, the theoretical theme of this podcast. Well, if you're looking forward to a new Ballard novel, you're going to be really disappointed because he's dead. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, okay, you got me. On the other hand, I've got his entire bibliography to look forward to, so forget you. Well, that's right? true. You do. <laughs> Drowned World, by the way, Drowned World is a good entry-level Ballard because it's at the end of the disaster cycle and just at the beginning of the of the new, new wavy stuff. Yeah. So, you know, however, the reason that I say that this, and listeners, just as so you're aware, Gary and I have actually done something we've rarely done. We've done a little preparation, mm-hmm. haven't we? And what People we've done, do we've put together a list of books we're looking forward to in 2014. And the first book that I'm looking forward to, which I have not been able to get a copy of yet, which makes me kind of like really annoyed, is Simon Ng's Wolves. Right. Now, and you've told me how wonderful that's supposed to be, and I've not seen it either. Yeah. I thought I said we sent you a copy. I haven't seen it. Okay. Well, everybody I know who has read it loves it, thinks it's brilliant. Uh, there's a major review of it by Toby Litt in The Guardian, who flags Ings as the new Ballard. But Ings as, has been around for... I, I was reviewing his early novels, what, almost 20 years ago? Yes, I know, but I think... It, well, sorry, no, not as a new Ballard, as the true successor to J.G. Ballard. Ah, that could make sense. With a what, what seems to be a dark, cutting-edge, contemporary science fiction novel. It looks fascinating. It sounds very post-cyberpunky, very atmospheric, very dark, all that kind of thing. So I'm really, really looking forward to this book. I'm trying all my little contacts. In fact, the only reason I haven't got it already is all of my ebook avenues are cut off, and so I'm waiting for a physical copy to arrive. Mm. But it is my number one pick of, of the, the new year to read. Oh, I don't have a number one pick. Was I no, I just might, rank that's, that's these? Well, actually, I was going to say to you, are we going to do this like back and forth, your choice, my choice, or are we just going to go through one list and then the other list? I don't know. I mean, it's uh, my, my list started off, actually, I cheated because I started looking at books that I was looking forward to, and I said, no, wait a minute, I've already read that. Okay. So they're like... Let's go back and forth. I've done Wolves by Simon Ings' book I'm 
desperately looking forward to it. It's a January release. It is actually in stores now, so everybody else can probably race out and poke fun at me by reading it first, but I'm really looking forward to that one. Okay, I am looking forward to Joe Walton's My Real Children. Fair enough. I've read part of it, and this is one of those things that you... I, I don't... Other reviewers probably handle this better than I do, but uh, I had a copy of it. I was on a plane back from England and read most of it and was enjoying it thoroughly. And then uh, when I landed and crashed, and the, the trip back from Brighton was was disastrous in terms of the amount of work I had. Yeah. So I didn't finish it, partly because, not, not because I wasn't fascinated by it, but partly because I had other deadlines, I was enjoying it, and part of me says, you're not supposed to just enjoy this. So I don't know how it ends. Okay. And the other reason I put it off was because I thought, I want to reread this from the beginning before I write the review, and the book's not coming out until, what, something like May, I believe. It's, it's, a, it's a May release, and it seems yeah. to be a what, an inter intertwining tale of memory between two women, one in the past, one in the present, that sort of a thing? Well, and that's, it, it, it's, it's a, um, what I've come to think of as a sliding doors novel. A woman makes a decision early in her life, and the novel splits in two, okay. and follows each of those decisions uh, down different pathways. In some ways, it's two very interesting largely realistic novels about life in Britain over a period of really decades and um, and it, it's it, at the point I was reading it was becoming more science fictional which just tantalized me altogether so it, it's one of those novels which uh, speaking as somebody who's not finished it could end up to be really unsatisfying or really really satisfying well, based on Joe's track record, it's probably going to be very, very satisfying. I have to say, though this is outside the remit of our theme, that's not the Joe Walton book I'm most looking forward to. What's the one you're looking forward to? I'm looking forward to The Just City. She delivered this already to Patrick Nielsen Hayden and has finished the sequel. It's a pair of novels. Uh -huh. And I will the actual description that Patrick gave me up for it was, it's about Artemis and Apollo deciding to, as an experiment, set up Plato's Republic on an eastern Mediterranean island in the Bronze Age, populating it with people snatched from up and down the human timeline, and instead of slaves, they have robots from the future. That sounds like a lot of fun. That's going to be I awesome. I mean, like, and, and I actually thought it's it was going to come out at the tail end of this year, but it's actually a January 2015 book. So it's already you're like... you're cheating! That's what I said. It's outside the remit yeah. of our okay. podcast. But it, it's... Like, my big, like, I, I am hungering for that book like no other. I can't wait to read it. But I am really interested in My Real Children no, it, as well. It, it's fascinating, and uh, you have inside tracks to things that I don't. So I'm okay, so I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to cheat in a different direction. I'm going to talk about a book that I've already read that was under discussion a lot last year in England that I had to really restrain myself from eating, reading and reviews because it's not coming out in the United States until this March, which is Christopher Priest, The Adjacent. Okay. And uh, I can't say I'm looking forward to it because I just read it. But if I hadn't read it, I'd be looking forward to it. So you're looking back. And in some probably. sense, in some sense, being a Christopher Priest novel, once you've read it, you're still looking forward to it. <laughs> because you know there's stuff you've got to figure out on a second and third reading. And I have to say, there's something very cool about looking back fondly on something you're looking forward to. Yes, that's <laughs> okay. the nostalgia of the future. Which uh, I, think I, is I, I will... Bye flag some future subject for the podcast that, and say that I would love to see the adjacent on the Hugo ballot. I'm skeptical that it will be there, but I'd love to see it. But there are any number of British writers who should be there. Anyway, my next pick, I'm because we're skeptical. I'm not skeptical because there's so many British voters this year. Yeah. And the adjacent was a very prominent novel last year, not just among science. Fiction Do you think readers. it might make the Hugo ballot? I think, it'll, I think it'll make the Hugo ballot. I hope it does. Um, well, we can wait to see. Anyway, my next pick, because we're going back and forth, right? Okay. Is you go? I forgot about that part. Uh, is Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer. Now this is. I had that on my list as well. This is uh, the first volume in the Southern Reach trilogy. I just read Farron Miller's review of it, where she raves about it a bit, uh, and it sounds actually it sounds very Ballardian in its setup about this strange, desolate, strange area that's locked off, that's all jungly and weird. And I guess I'm, one reason I'm looking forward to it is I, I think it's going to be a, a much more broadly accessible Vandermeer. I've loved some of Jeff's stuff, and other mm -hmm. stuff has, has been less immediately um, my kind of thing. Uh, 
But this looks really interesting, so I'm, I'm really eagerly looking forward to it. And of course, if you love it, then the sequel is due out in June, and I think the third book may be done by Christmas. So the mm. whole trilogy is going to be coming at us very quickly, and it looks great. I think he's a. I, th I think uh, Vandermeer is an unpredictable writer, and I think he wants to be an unpredictable writer, uh, which is a good thing because yes. he had. You're right. He had a niche uh, for uh, a while with uh, his his. Is uh, sitting. I, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of Am the city. Was it uh, Ambergris? Ambergris, yes. Uh, but then Venus Underground, which was a, a departure, was very interesting. And could look so this this looks fascinating to me too. Okay. Um, okay, let me add another name. Uh, and this is one. There's another book which I have an e-copy of and have not started reading because I want to wait until I can write the review. M. Rickard's first novel, The Memory Garden. Yep, that's on coming the list out, too. Coming under the name of Mary Rickard, which I think tells us something. What does it tell us, uh, Gary? It may tell us something about uh, the way Sourcebooks wants to market it. I think that um, from what I've heard, I've not talked to Mary about it, other than what she told us on the podcast, which was, we should remind our listeners, was a scoop. People yeah. first heard about Mary Rickard's novel being completed and accepted here. Uh, I gather it's different in tone and somewhat uh, more uh, conventional in structure than some of her short fiction is. So it might, and maybe even a little bit lighter in tone than some of her uh, stuff. So it may be that there's, and it's being published by Sourcebooks, which is an interesting publisher because they tend to direct books toward book clubs and okay. toward uh, a much more popular markets. So I think um, that I'm curious about it. I'm, forget the marketing. Forget about the fact that she's changed to Mary, Mary Rickard for this one novel. This is an M. Rickard novel. This is the sort of thing that we've been mm. waiting for in the same way we've been waiting for the Kelly Link novel. Well, I have to say, and I'm trepidatious about it in the same way. Obviously, uh, obviously you would be. Just because in the best possible spirit that you hope that it will live up to the expectation you have for it because she's written so many remarkable stories and you're never sure how a novel's going to play out. But I am. Mm. I'm very, I mean, I'm, we are very fortunate that we have review copies of it and have to get to it. But my next pick is a short story collection. Uh -huh. P.S. Publishing in April are supposed to be putting out The Best of Ian MacDonald. I have that big, on my list, too. This is weird. We, listeners, we have not actually shown each other's what, our list, no. lists, so there you go. And, and Ian has been one of the major short story writers in our field for the last 20 years, probably mm. even becoming to greater prominence over the last 10. Uh, the sequence of stories that, uh, that ended up in... The, you know, the Brazil collection, um, Thingy Nights, mm -hmm. that I've gone blank on, I can't believe I've gone blank on it, were, were remarkable, yeah. but there's been a lot of other stories. No, so that was not the Brazil collection, that was the, uh, sorry. Uh, in, the, in, the River of Gods the River of God's collection, collection of stories. Yeah, Cyberbed Nights, that's right. Gods, yeah. But okay, and the, the stories that are in, in Cyberbed Nights are terrific, but Ian has always written remarkable stories. I mean, when I first encountered his work, I don't know when you did, but uh, when he first started writing, he, his first novel came out at exactly the same time, the same month as his first short story collection, both from mm. Bantam Spectra. And there was a story in the opening collection, Unfinished Portrait of the King of Pain by Vincent van Gogh, which is just a remarkable story. Mm -hmm. And since then, he's followed up one after the other, right up to just recently with a story in Old Mars by uh, that. Uh, Dan uh, Desoir Martin edited. Uh, so a, a major, major book and one of two collections of his that PS Publishing are um, editing or publishing in a big year for Ian because, of course, he started off the year with the third book in the Everness series and mm. he is well progressed on his next adult novel. So, yeah. Now, the Everness series, The Empress of the Sun is out February or is it out now? I don't know. January in the UK, February in the US, I think. Okay. All right. So that's uh, and and I'm looking forward to seeing him at the international conference yes. on the fantastic because I think he's um, I I don't know why because he seems to be successful he does well I still feel he's an underappreciated writer for all the success he's had uh, yes. with the Indian novels the Brazil novels and now the Turkey novel the Dervish House and with his short story collections um, I think he's, there's a reason for that though I think you're right that? I think there's a reason. I think because it's taken a while for him to find his own voice and place. I mean, yes, he started writing back in the 80s, but there was a whole string of stuff that really seemed to be him writing his influences out of what he was doing. You know, and you could see that right up through all you know, the Mars stuff and a whole bunch of yeah. stuff. But 
somewhere around River of Gods, he really found his own subject, his own metier, and you can see it. And and this, that that's why the new stuff is so remarkable. And that was when the everybody started really responding. So he started getting Hugo nominations and much more. So I think he's really in the, the the flush of his maturity as a writer. That's why everything he does is so exciting and interesting. Well, that's true, but he's also having a lot of fun with the young adult series. Oh, yeah, and, uh, and you can tell. And, and that's one of the things uh, that you can see he's enjoying. I, I don't know. I enjoy reading writers who, in, who seem to enjoy what they're doing when they're writing. Now, that's a terrible thing to say because that pretty much eliminates Kafka and Dostoevsky and... <laughs> Any number of contemporary writers I could name, but but by and large, uh, the 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 um, alternate world series that uh, the um, Empress of the Sun continues is just an enormous amount of fun, and you can see he's having an enormous amount of fun yeah. doing it. And, and, sure I, and I believe that series will continue beyond the third volume. It's not a trilogy, so. Mm-hmm. Somebody, okay, Michael, um, I'm still cheating. There's a new Daryl Gregory novel called After Party. Okay. Uh, and what's interesting about Daryl Gregory, there are two things. There's one thing that's fairly consistent in his work, which is what you might call speculative neurology. He's yeah. interested in how consciousness works and how consciousness is constructed in some kind of negotiation between the brain and the outside world. And he's done this in various different ways. In his short stories, where he gained a lot of prominence, um, and in his first couple of novels, uh, and then. Then he did a zombie novel, which nobody expected. And what he's one of these interesting writers who, even though he has kind of the same uh, substrata of themes, goes off in different directions. And the after party seems to be uh, set in a kind of uh, William Gibson drug-addled future, and it deals with drugs. Yep. Uh, it deals. With, I have read. I read an early version of it. I should say. Uh, it deals with mind-altering drugs and the social effects of those drugs. And uh, looks to be a very fascinating novel that will not be the novel that anybody who's been reading Daryl Gregory has been expecting. Oh, cool. In some ways, it's much more its much more of a near-future thriller. Um, and I think it, I hope it'll do very well. Okay. The next book I'm looking forward to is a young adult fantasy novel. Mm-hmm. It's Francis Harding's The Cuckoo Song, uh, which sounds dark and creepy with dolls with missing glass eyes and all kinds of weirdness Mm -hmm. this woman is the Joan Aiken of the 21st century she is a truly remarkable writer her face like glass which came out early in 2013 belongs on the world fantasy ballad if there's any justice in to my way of thinking I loved her verdigree deep Um, the fly by night pair of books that and twilight robbery were fantastic and this is her her major new novel coming out from Macmillan in May and looks to be really really excellent can't wait to see it that sounds fascinating and i francis harding is again somebody who is um uh, i guess had a substantial reputation in england in young adult literature and is now more and more over the last two or three years gaining the attention of the science fiction and fantasy reading community as a writer i mean it's it's, it's interesting how writers like this and philip pullman is an earlier example mm-hmm I, 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 I refuse to use the word transcend, but I certainly <laughs> will use the word escape, the sort of YA ghetto, so that people who are interested in fantasy pretty much have to read Philip Pullman and increasingly have to read Francis Harding. Yes. It's true. Um, and, and, in fact, Francis has written some short fiction for me, which has been terrific, but the novels are really just remarkable things. So, yeah. What you got next, Gary? Uh, okay, you mentioned a short story collection. I'll mention a short story collection. I'm cheating again because I've read it. But it's the, it's very rare we get a short story collection from Eileen Gunn. True. And her second short story collection, which I think is a terrific title for a short story collection, it's, it's the title is Questionable Practices. Yes. That's a title. I can think of a hundred books that ought to have that title. Uh, but she's simply done it. Now, Eileen does not write a lot of fiction. She's somebody who uh, has gained an enormous amount of respect as a mentor, as a reader, as a workshop teacher, and so forth. Uh, and a lot of the stories, I think four or five of the stories in here are collaborations with Michael Swanwick. Mm-hmm. But what I said earlier about somebody who's having fun writing, uh, there, I think, are two kinds of Eileen Gunn stories. One of which is the sort of story that she sold to you for um, 
one of the Eclipse anthologies, Up the Something Road. Up the Fire um, Road. A couple the of these stories road. were in my book. A couple of these stories were in books of mine, so yeah. Yeah, it was, it's a terrific story, and there are two original stories in the collection, which are worth looking at. Uh, but there are also are stories that are written for the likes of us, you know, Samuel R. Delaney and Michael Ma- Swanwick, the Joyce Kilmer rest stop on the some. Uh, it just, you mean Michael and Swan- Michael Swanwick? It's inside Daniel- jokes. They're inside well, yeah. jokes, and they're very, very serious stories. Okay. And you know what she she is doing, without claiming that she's doing it, is she is, uh, in her own way, continuing the tradition of. Uh, sort of um, autodidactic, uh, eclectic, cultural assimilation stories that Avram Davidson could do so well. Yes, who she was heavily influenced by. Um, and of course, she'll be at Ikfa mm-hmm. when the book is out. Maybe we should talk to her about the book. When the book comes out, I hope. Yeah, yes. Why not? That'll be in keeping with our British theme. Um, okay, my turn next. This next one is actually quite an oddity in some ways, but a book that I've been looking forward to for some time. Um, In June of this year, Subterranean Press are putting out Beautiful Blood, which is a novel of the Dragon Graul by Lucia Shepard. The book came out last year in French as a French original. I remember that. Under a different title. I think it's about a 60,000, 65,000-word novel. And I think, nominally, you could say it's actually the second Dragon Roll novel, because if you got the large collection of the same title, the Dragon Roll, that came out last year, the year before, the year before, there was uh, a fifty-five thousand word story in there called the Skull, which was terrific. Which is and the the, the Dragon Roll is such an iconic setting, and we've been working towards the conclusion of this series, which I don't know if it's in this at all, and this mythical uh-huh. book that Lucius has talked about for years called The Grand Tour, which would bring it all together. So I'm really excited. I mean, uh, this was also written and finished before Lucius fell ill, because as you know, he had a ma- major stroke last year that he's recovering right. from, yeah. and apparently he's doing very well, which is great to hear. But this is a big book. I think it's a really important book, uh, and I hope it'll get the attention that it deserves. And that's a June book? Yeah, yeah it is, yeah. Okay, because that was on my list as well. Only because it's Lucius Shepard, because I was going to ask you what it was about. Well, now you know. Okay, so well, let me ask you if you... I think a French okay, title there, like there a Chalice writers, of Blood or something. What? what? Well, there, no, there are writers you trust. There are writers that, uh, even though they may have disappointed you once in the, or twice in the past, you, you, you tend to want to know what they're doing next. And Lucius Shepard is certainly one of those. Another one, because I don't know anything about this, but I saw it on the Locust forthcoming books list, is a new novel by Paul Park call all those vanished engines so what do you know about I, that not not a thing i haven't even looked at the locust list truthfully to put mine together um huh. but paul is always worth reading i love his short fiction so yeah mm. i mean and particularly since he's now transcended the early wolfian influences that overwhelmed the, his first series of books you know the soldiers of paradise books and stuff well those books but the uh, romania books uh, which were uh, remarkable books just really remarkable. I think there may be one more book in that series than there really needed to be. Possibly. The, the original conceit, the first, it, it just is, a, is an astonishing conceit, and he writes beautifully. You're right. His short fiction is always uh, fascinating. I will, say, I will say, if we use the word remarkable to describe a book again, I'm going to end the podcast. Okay. <laughs> I'm editing okay. us. We won't do that. Uh, now, you're, no, so it's my turn now? It's okay. your turn now, because you, and you can't call this book remarkable. Oh, but it probably will be. Okay, this is the second collection of two that are on my list of, of 10 or 12 books that I'm looking forward to. In August of this year, there will be a 600,000-word short story collection, I think, roughly. It seems like that long. Uh, Academic Exercises by K.J. Parker. This, oh, is, this okay. is Parker's first short story collection. It will include the two World Fantasy Award-winning novellas that Parker wrote, uh, which, which Parker having won last year and the year before, yeah. uh, and the one that I think is likely to win this year, The Sun and I, along with the rest of the Studium's stories. Uh, because believe it or not, this isn't all of Parker's short fiction. It's all of them that are set in the same magical universe as the studium kind of stories which are set around here and they're articulate and they're witty and they're dark and they're funny and they're wonderfully written and intelligent some of the very best fantasy we've seen in the last 10 years so i'm just really eager about this i didn't realize it was six hundred thousand words but i had it on my list simply because it well was no. DJ. okay no, it's 600 pages so it's probably more like two hundred and fifty thousand words sorry 
Okay, all right. Fine. That's a bit, bit of a relief, isn't it? You're going, I don't want you had, you really worried about that, that, that puts the postage about the limits of what Amazon Prime will do. Um, okay, uh, okay, that okay, that was on my list as well. Um, I'm going to mention, okay, things I'm curious about because writers I like and want to see something, want to see take a different direction. I don't know what this is. There's a Tobias Buckel novel called Hurricane Fever. Um, he's a talented writer. I lost interest, frankly, in his last series after the second volume. Yep. Uh, but he's also got a he's got he's, he's got this sort of Caribbean perspective. He's got an Islanders perspective. He has a very interesting sort of diaspora take sure. on fiction. I don't know what the novel is going to be at all. Uh, but he's he's a writer that I have enough respect for to think okay any day now this novel is going some novel is going to come out which is going to blow my socks off yep. and i keep watching him to see if uh, if this is the one oh, fingers crossed that, was that a mean thing to say i don't know i'm not going to edit it out of the podcast so if he kicks you in the shins at <laughs> for something well then you'll know this okay. next one for me is an expression of faith gary and a a a a, a, uh, a vote for the, for it being more interesting than I fear it could be, but hey. Um, in August, Golans will publish War Dogs by Greg Bear, the first in a new science fiction trilogy. And honestly for me, Bear has been a bit lost in the wilderness for low these last 15 years or so. But I'd like to think he could write a hard SF novel that would really knock my socks off and really engage me completely. I think you're right. I, I, I tend to agree with that. I mean, there's an interesting sense in which he spent a fair amount of time writing thrillers with, with some of the hard, what you might call the hard SF thriller, uh, the Darwin's Children, Darwin's Radio, and that sort of thing. And I think he did go back to core SF with Hull Zero Three, mm. uh, but it was not a major Greg Bear novel. So Well, no, it was a novella that was puffed up. Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, so now we're looking for what a really well-structured, you know, a uh, full novel from him could be, and that'll be interesting. Uh, this this is uh, the same kind of thing that comes up with um, I don't know. Um, oh, well, we are, did, have we already mentioned the third uh, Greg Egan novel in his trilogy, Arrows of Time? No, we haven't mentioned the Arrows of Time. We should mention that because there's a part of me that thinks as much as this um, has not had broad circulation because of having been published by Nightshade and, and not getting and, and still being published by Nightshade. Yeah, there are. It's, it's a remarkable feat of imagination in all sorts of ways. Um, and the first two novels, once you get into his physics, he's still a very good novelist. I think one of the problems that people have with um, with with Greg's fiction is that there is so much. Uh, math and alternative physics and reversed equations and that sort of thing involved in the setting that you get distracted from what he's able to do with characters. And one of the things uh, that our podcaster and Karen Burnham pointed out to me about um, A Clockwork Rocket, the first in the trilogy, is that, well, okay, you get past this variable speed of light stuff and all the stuff, which, which, which Greg encourages you to think about, and you realize this is a very believable and credible uh, account of what it's like for a woman scientist to try to work her way through an academic structure. Um, I wonder if Greg has written about more women scientists than anybody else I can think of. Well, he certainly seems to think about what their plight must be. Yes. Um, and he very well might. I mean, there, there are these, we've talked about this before, there are these kind of odd specializations that writers have, and Greg writes women scientists very well. He does. Uh, we, we mentioned... We're, Kim Stanley Robinson writes about music very well, and yes, nobody thinks of that. But they, so, so there are these things that I think people are worth paying attention to. Well, I mean, um, Greg had a fantastic novelette out last year, a story mm -hmm. called Zero for Co Conduct, which was in MIT's 12 Tomorrows. And it's entirely about a young, a young woman who is scientifically and mathematically gifted encountering challenges about getting her work taken seriously uh, in the Middle East. Yeah, fascinating. And the title fascinating. Uh, borrowed, borrowed from that classic Jean Vigo yeah. film from 1931. Uh, so he's. I, I think one of the things that happens is that writers get typecast, and Greg Egan has gotten typecast as really hard mathematical computer science, physics equations kind of SF, 
and to some extent he's encouraged that. And you overlook um, how well he does with characters in difficult situations. Um, I mean, there's, and we, we all know about his uh, interest, for example, in dealing with refugees in Australia. Yeah. Uh, we know about how character-based, how seriously character-based a novel like Tyrannesia is, or even his early short stories like Learning to Be Me. Yeah. The point is he's never given up that. No. But it's it's kind of, there's a lot of science fiction, uh, this is, people are going to kill me for saying this, there's a lot of science fiction kipple between the reader and the actual narrative. Yeah. And you have to work through that. You don't have yeah. to work through it, but it really helps. Yeah. Okay. So, so what's your next one you're looking forward to? Well, this is there another time because, well, you you mentioned the um, the um, retrospective KJ Parker collection. This yes. is kind of cheating because I, I believe it came out in December, but I haven't seen it. Which was the second volume of Carol Imswiller's collected stories. Sure. And Carol Imswiller is one of these people who I keep saying is one of two or three people, one of two or three women who can date her careers back to the new wave and earlier, the other two being, uh, I suppose, uh, Kit Reed and Pamela Zoline. Uh, and the stories, uh, Carol Imschuller's career is fascinating, it just fascinates me because she was, you know, socially she was mostly, uh, she was educated in, in fairly elite institutions, she married Ed Imschuller, became involved in the science fiction world, started writing science fiction stories, which were very good, some of them like A, um, a, day, in the, a day at the Beach, are, yep. are genuine classics, and then moved into more and more strange, experimental, and interesting fictions later on, so that yes. you can see her influencing generations of writers uh, from, from the 50s through um, the 60s and 70s and 80s, with people like Kelly Link and, uh, and Eileen Gunn and others. So I, I don't know what's in the second volume. I haven't seen it. I'm not even convinced it's out, but it was listed as a December 2013 book. True. Yeah, I know. Uh, I, I think it may be out, but I'm not sure. My, my hmm. actually next one falls into a not dissimilar category. It's a little bit of an expression of faith. I'm not entirely sure the dates that I've seen for this one are correct, but uh, I am greatly looking forward to, very greatly looking forward to, The Water Knife by Paolo Bacigalupi. Which is supposed to be out before year's end, according to the you know, the release information I saw, and that's his mm. next major adult science fiction novel. His first following on from the the Wind Up Girl, not following up uh, in terms of story or, th or, th or theme, but just being his second adult science fiction novel. Yeah, he did the Wind Up Girl, and then went into the uh, young adult novels, uh, you know, with mm. um, the Drowned Cities and uh, uh, the Shipbreaker. Uh, which are terrific, and uh, I'm, I'm especially interested in the water knife, and because partly because Paolo talked to us about it on this podcast, yep. in that it seems to be it's 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 canop, it's uh, it looks like it's being mainstream. It deals with one of these immediate issues that you wonder if by the time the novel comes out, the whole business of the Colorado River Valley and how that affects uh, what the water wars basically in in the Southwest. Um, and it could potentially be a breakout bestseller. It could be one of those things that appeals to both science fiction uh, readers it could. I mean, and, and not Not to poo-poo the whole um, breakout novel idea. I think <clears throat> it may also be one of the most cogent, and, I mean, I, I hope, one of the most cogent and coherent discussions of climate change in science fiction that we'll see. It's one of the things I'm hoping for. I really wish the novel had come out before the end of this class I'm teaching on sustainability and literature. Mm. But uh, keep in mind that the cogent arguments and uh, political realities about climate change that inform Kim Stanley Robinson's Science in the Capital trilogy are pretty persuasive. And just having reread those, they hold up pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so I, I, I think this is one of those areas where climate change is... Uh, something on the edge of what science fiction can do really well and what mainstream thrillers can do really well. And we need to have people like Bacigalupi and Robinson writing about it because uh, you may recall Michael Crichton, before he died, one of his last novels was a climate, essentially a climate change denial novel. I don't recall the title offhand. Um, okay. But but there there, there is that uh, sort of uh, genuine grip, genuine coming to grips with with policy issues, with decisions that have to be made now, and some would argue that that's a responsibility of good science fiction writers. Indeed. And 
I think you can make the argument, and I've talked, we, we talked to Paolo about this, and I've talked about him before. Um, going to young adult fiction is very important if you're going to try to change people's minds. Yes. Um, and I hope that Paolo can do this with his adult novel as well. It raises an issue which we could save for a separate podcast, which is, can science fiction really change people's minds in terms of public behavior, public policy, and public opinion? And I don't know the answer to that. Yep. Um, although I would, I would, what I've argued in my class is that the one work of science fiction which had drastic effects worldwide in public policy was the opening passage, the opening three or four pages of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring in 1962, mm -hmm. yep. which was a science fictional depiction, elegantly written, of a world without birds and insects. Yes. And DDT has been not quite gone, but it's certainly been reduced in its effectiveness. Is it your turn or mine? Your turn. Okay. Um, things, uh, we're into things like I'm curious about, and this is things that you might be able to tell me about because I've just seen the titles. What's happening with Al, Alistair Reynolds on the Steel Breeze? Well, it was out. It came out last July. It came we out were... last July in the UK? Yes, and in the U.S., and we reviewed it, and I yeah. it, actually it, it sits into a different topic for me that we'll talk about during the, oh, year, okay. the coming year, about how Al Reynolds has been criminally overlooked by the Hugos, mm -hmm. and this is you know, a major new novel, very well spoken about, uh, this is the second in his sequence following on from Blue Remembered Earth, so yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it's okay. happening. In fact, I was going to say that the book to look, be looking forward to is the third of those, which I think should be out this year sometime. Okay. Well, let me, let, me, let me throw another one out then. Uh, what about Peter Watts' Echopraxis? That is, it's actually Echopraxia. Echopraxia? Echopraxia is coming out from Tor in the end of August, beginning of September. It is uh, the first novel since Blindsight by Peter Watts. Major new hard SF novel. I think it's set in the same world as his islands, you know, the islands uh, novelette yeah. that was in the new space opera edited by some guys a while ago. And I am desperately looking forward to it. It is one of my top that, two picks for no, the year. That sounds terrific. That, that sounds terrific. In fact, I should probably ping Peter and see if I can get a copy from him. I bet he'd send it to me. It's coming out in August, did we say? Yeah. Okay. So that throws it back to you. Unless you... Okay, here's well, another... That, that, that was my last one. I only, I only put together a top, roughly was your last top one? ten or so. Well, that was the one we had. We... But, but I could name check a few people who should have books out. I mean, we'll set aside, you know, a major new book like, say, The Peripheral by William Gibson, which doesn't have a scheduled pub date yet. Yeah. But I am there should be a new Paul McCauley novel out this year that I've seen a little bit about. Um, I'm there will be the second of the Steve Baxter Proxima books. That's due mm -hmm. at Ultima, I think, is due out in June or July. Um, interested in that? There will be Karen Lord's sequel, I assume, to the best of all possible worlds, which is called the galaxy game which, and I, I know nothing about it i mean uh except the galaxy game would have been such a great title for a galaxy novel back in 1953 or something it's, uh, and I, th I think the title itself tells us something what to expect um the speaking of sequels um and third uh or th second or third novels there's the hanu Ryunimi novel the, the causal angel which i guess completes a trilogy which uh, yes. began with a really remarkable novel, and and and, and ra it raises the question um, because the second volume, uh, the, the the first the first volume in that trilogy I loved. The second volume had the problem of many second volumes in trilogies. You have a really inventive world, unlike mm -hmm. any world you've seen before. Uh, you have a collection of sort of cultural references and allusions. Unlike any you've seen before, he goes back to you know Maurice LeBlanc mysteries as well as all that sort of. And then once you've invented that world, you've got a second volume, and you're not quite stuck with that world, but you are a little bit, so that the dazzle of the first volume can never yeah. re be repeated in the second volume. Yeah, I've um, got to admit, I don't want to be sort of unfair about this, but I found my interest waned a little bit with the second book, and so I'm less interested in what. Hanu will do with book three, as I am interested in what he might do with, with the next batch of books, which I hope we will hear about soon, because he's finished The Causal Angel, 
Um, yeah. I know because he's finishing now, r- rushing to finish a short story for me. So that was he just did the copy edits on it. So I'm fascinated to know what he'll do next. He'll probably be horrified to know that, that I'm more interested in, in that than this. Well, but that's what I'm really kind of. I, you have to have some faith that somebody can pull something out that's entirely new. I think the problem is, and it's not unique uh, to to, to Ryanimi. I mean, the, no. the Quantum Thief was was stunningly new. Uh, but in a sense, you know, if you go back to 1984, Neuromancer was more stunningly new than the next two novels were. Yes. Um, and if you go back to look at David Marisek's novel, it was stunning, and the short stories that made up parts of it were stunning. By the time of the second novel, you can't do that level of invention again. No, you can't. Uh, and it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a new problem in science fiction at all. Um, I mean, okay, let's go back 70 years. Once you've, once you've read Foundation... Foundation and Empire, okay. It's still the basic stuff. Are you just trying to get me to admit that it's not fair of me to be not that excited about the causal angel, Gary? I think, I, I, I think it's, I think it's unfair to <laughs> to assume that a writer is locked into a particular world-building scenario, even though the history of science fiction and fantasy teaches that that happens too often. One, and here, this may be the difference between science fiction and fantasy, which is going to get me in all kinds of trouble, I can hear already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I think science fiction readers don't want to read about the same world over and over and over again. They want to see new things. They want to see innovations. If you're going to write a second or third novel in your science fiction trilogy or quadrology or quintology or whatever it is, the readers want something blowing up. They want to expand the context of it in some way. Yep. Okay. Fantasy readers, many fantasy readers, are perfectly happen, happy, happy going back to the same world for 20 volumes. I think that's a little simplistic, Gary, maybe. Yes, it is. I'm but not sure that's really fan- fair. I don't think that's really fair. But maybe. I. Okay. I'm giving you my, 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 my 101 voices of skepticism response. I don't know that I'm really convinced, Gary. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of a specific series which I won't mention. And friends of mine who are not science fiction or fantasy readers, and they read books in that series in the same way that friends of mine read Agatha Christie mysteries. Yeah. Uh, they want the familiar. They want variations on the familiar, but they want the setting to be essentially familiar. Once you've created a setting, I mean, one of the reasons a lot of great fantasy writers, um, Tolkien being the precedent. Mm-hmm. sort of gave up after they'd finished the story is that they didn't want they had no interest they had certainly didn't have anybody offering them contracts let's go back and write 16 more novels in middle earth and just let's do every little possible corner of middle earth we can but sure. let's not change the basic uh, uh the basic mythology of it, the basic setting yeah. of it there are fantasy series that i think do that and okay. there are fantasy series that completely explode the world halfway through in the second or third volume uh, those are the ones I like, and those are the ones which I think most resemble the best science fiction series. Yeah, but is that even a fair compar- comparison? I don't know that a, the uh, the best a best fantasy uh, has to be comparable in any sense to a, a best science fiction story. I think they're quite often got different purposes, and you know, yeah, I'm not convinced. No, that's true. It's it's true. They have different purposes, and they and and world building is not the goal of either science fiction or fantasy uh, readers. All I'm arguing is that uh, readers of science fiction series expect more than plot by the time you're in the second and third volume. Yeah. They expect some imaginative leap. Uh, and I'm not sure that's equally true of all fantasy readers. I'm hedging my bets as much as I can, but I'm talking not about writer, writers so much as readers. Yeah. Okay. So what else do you have on your list, or is that the end of it? That's not the end of my list. Here's, here's, here's an, interesting, an interesting thing on my list. Um, because I'm both looking forward and not looking forward to it. The second volume of William Patterson's Heinlein biography is coming out in June. Okay. I was aware of that, yes. Okay. Um, There are problems with that in terms of structure. There are some problems in terms of prose. But Heinlein is such a dominant figure, you want to know what he did, and you want to know what happened. Volume two is when we get... Uh, through the 50s into the 60s and 70s. Into the uh, wacky we get to the point where Heinlein gets, by my perspective, really weird. Yeah. And you, you're getting into the area of Heinlein where I 
and I'm not the only one who had this experience, started reading some of these novels, To Sail Beyond the Sunset and so forth and so on, uh, Job, Comedy of Justice, and thinking, how could I have fallen so completely in love with this guy when I was a teenager? Sure. And you read further along in it and you think, there are flashes here and there. All that stuff is still there. What went on with Heinlein? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if this biography will explain anything. But I, it's 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 it's. I'm curious enough to find out what the facts are about that part of Heinlein's life. And and Patterson's strength is that he gets the facts down. He looks at different. It's not points. a little bit hagiographic. It's a little bit, but the but basically it's a. It's, if you look at the annotations, you look at the footnotes, you look yeah. at the bibliography and that sort of thing. He's done. Uh, he's done more research than anybody else is likely to ever do about Heinlein. Yeah, well, I'm sure. So the information is there. I want the information in the book. I have mixed feelings about how readable the book will be. Sure. Well, I have to say that I reread Citizen of the Galaxy two years ago and found it as readable as always. But I recall very clearly that the first Heinlein novel released during my book buying lifetime as a new release that I recall. Mm-hmm was The Number of the Beast. Ah. And that was not a major moment in my literary life, Gary. I would think not. Uh, and, and that's what fascinates me, because I do know some younger Heinlein readers who perfectly enjoy those uh, novels. There's um, actually a, a, a new book on Heinlein coming out from McFarlane. I think it's out from McFarlane Press by Joe Sanders, who uh, is, is a friend of mine and a friend of Stacy's, as a, as a kind of um, disclaimer. It's a completion of a book that he that was started by Tom Clarison many, many years ago. Tom Clarison was one of the pioneers of science fiction scholarship. And this is a reading of Heinlein's fiction that may be less hagiographic and more balanced. I've not seen the book yet, but I'm very curious about it. Because okay. um, the, the, the question of what happened to Heinlein uh, just fascinates me. Um, uh, and, and Heinlein is not somebody I grew up in love with. As a matter of fact, Somebody was, I was interviewed by Amazing Stories, and they asked me this question. I, I remembered how I started. I started out with a Bradbury fan, and I went from Bradbury, and I got to Clark, and I read a bunch of weird people like Charles Beaumont that nobody reads anymore. I was very late coming to Heinlein. I did not, I did not like Heinlein when I was 10 years old. Yeah. I didn't like Asimov much, and it, it took me a while to get there. Okay. Uh, so I came to him a little bit older and began to appreciate what he was doing technically. But as you're, you're, you're right. By the time, uh, by the time I'd really gotten a handle on what Heinlein was doing, the first, probably the first novel he published when I was close to adulthood, or at least young adult, was *Stranger in a Strange Land*. Okay, it's very impressive. Yeah, it but is. Same, I mean, it's a, it's a very impressive novel. But at the same time, you could see him if you'd read Heinlein of the '50s, if you'd read *Double Star*. Yeah. Even if you could see him going off the tracks a little bit there. Yeah. I have to say, I'm, I'm kind of in hiding from rereading 70s Heinlein. Uh, I reread, uh, what was it, uh, Glory Road a few years ago, which is a six, late uh-huh. 60s novel, early 60s novel, and was surprised about how poor I thought it was, particularly since I remember loving it when I was 13 or 14. Really loved Glory Road. It's one of my favorite books. Mm-hmm. And now I think it's well below the, the par. I, 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 I struggle with that one now. Do you have any thoughts about Podcane of Mars? I haven't reread Podcane of Mars in 30 years. I'd have to okay, go back and reread I, I re-read it. reread it a few years ago. And I, it, it was, it was, it's a novel which got um, misread by a lot of people because of um, the cover illustration by Michael Whelan, mm-hmm. which was full of coded penises and things like that, which is not what Heinlein's novel was really about at all. Um, I found it interesting back then. Uh, and I have not reread it, but I've talked to three or four women readers of Heinlein, and there is a group of women readers who are. Are you talking about Podcast and Mars or Friday? Uh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, I meant Friday. Friday. Friday is the one with the uh, the woman who looks like a stunned mullet on the cover, right? That Michael Whalen. Well, yeah, but that has, that, that, that's completely Michael yeah, Whalen. Yeah. He's talked about that. I'm, I'm completely thinking about Friday. So I, I want to reread Friday because uh, the, there is this approach to Heinlein. Uh, a kind of revisionist approach to Heinlein, which takes his fabled, cliched sexism and asks, "Wait a minute! If you actually look at what the women characters do and the decisions they make, and 
and their agency in his novels, it might be a little bit different. And that's not my idea, yeah. actually. Well, maybe that'll be a future uh, Cood Street podcast reading club project. You and I can reread it at the same time and then talk about it. But do you have anything else to recommend? Because we're getting to, in fact, we're a little bit over our hour, Harry. Running out of time, we don't have a lot of other things to <coughs> recommend. There's, um, oh, Paul Cornell's doing the second novel in his series, and that, that's fun. Jim Marlowe's got what I assume is a novella coming out, The Madonna and the Starship from Tachyon. Uh, but not much else. Uh, I mean, there are other things, but we should stop now. There are indeed. There are, there are books so, that I think are going to be lots of fun. There'll be a new Daniel Abraham fantasy novel in yeah, his uh, his series. There'll be a new James Corey book, uh, Sybil Laburne, that looks like it should be fun. But lots of stuff to look forward to. There's going to be some new Thomas Ligotti out during the year. I would be would be surprised if we don't hear announcement of a new Stan Robinson novel at some point. And to my own personal delight, I know that it's a 2015 or so book, but Guy Kay has just sat down to start writing his new novel. Ah, so lots of things to look. Oh, I know what else is out there. I completely forgot about this. And I have a copy. I've got to read it. Uh, there is a new Jonathan Carroll novel due out soon. Do we have any idea when this is coming out? It'll be due this out in May. House- it, it, oh. oh, I'd have to go look up the title now for you, Gary. But okay. uh, I read it. I have been sent a copy of it. Bathing the Lion, it's called. And mm-hmm. I think it's due out mid-year. And I must admit, I've had a spotty experience with recent Carol, but I'm hoping this one will be good. I am utterly fascinated by Jonathan Carroll, and I hope we can have it. Uh, oh, have October. A October. I've just looked it up. People have heard me clicking around in the background. It's out in Poland already, I think, but it's coming out from St. Martin's in October. October. Excellent. Yeah. And with that, Gary, I think we come to the end of episode 175, really 172, of the Cood Street Podcast. Yay, and we're back! A little bit Yay, tired, we're back. back! Welcome, everybody, to 2014, and we'll look forward to talking to everyone next week. It occurs to me, actually, that everybody should be saying yay and not us. That's a bit weird and kind of... Anyway, you know what we should do before we go? A little mm-hmm. thank you. I'd like to thank Cat Sparks. Who, nomin- who picked the four episodes that we ran as repeats during our, hi- our hiatus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we appreciated that, and we hope that people enjoyed getting to revisit some of the older podcasts there. And, yeah, with that, I think we should wind up, and we will be back next week, hopefully with Liza Grantromby, uh, Editor-in-Chief at Locus, to talk about their annual recommended reading list and the purpose and value of such things. Absolutely. Lists are... And if not, we'll make oh, up something not. else on the fly. We'll see. She's got kids. Exactly. It's harder to schedule. So anyway, okay. Until then, Gary, it's great to be back. Good night. Great to have you back. Talk to you soon.